It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who think that going to ACIP is work and not fun. What, isn't it the other way around? Don't you think no. it's fun and not work? Um, I mean, I think that having dinner with people afterwards is fun. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's interesting. The influenza stuff was interesting, but the anthrax stuff, I really was, Gets you know, drags on a bit. not sure why I was existing in that space. Yeah. Why don't you, why don't you tell everybody quick what ACIP is and why you went there? I know you'll talk more about it later, but just for those people just tuning in right. so they know what you're talking about. The ACIP is the Advanced Childhood Interesting People Organization. <laughs> no. It's the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. The easiest way to think of them is they are the people who recommend the vaccination schedule. Right. And they have meetings. Anyhow, I'm Karen Ernst, and I am the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra. I am a general pediatrician here at Blank Trums Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And you may have guessed this or you may not have, but we are going to be talking about ACIP and vaccine updates in several different ways. I did three interviews while at ACIP. I did one interview with LJ Tan, who is my flu expert go-to guy. Mm -hmm. I did an interview with Lori Boyle, who is an advanced nurse practitioner who made a public comment at ACIP, put a pin in that, and I interviewed Amy Pisani, who's been on this podcast before. She's from Vaccinate Your Family, The Next Generation of Every Child by Two. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And I did none of those things. Yeah. He he gets to coast for half of the podcast while I present those. But that's okay because we have a lot to talk about. Sure. My Around the Web is going to be something obvious. So let's start with yours, Mr. Nathan. Well, I just wanted to bring up, I don't have a specific article, but I did want to talk a little bit because I know that everybody listening wants to know what's going on in Iowa. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what's happened in Iowa over the last couple of weeks. I mean, isn't that always the question? What is going on in Iowa? Yes. They built it. Why haven't I gone? I know. Yeah, right. (laughs) I know that that's what you are always wondering too up in Minnesota. So there have actually been several bills uh, in that that had been introduced uh, for this legislative session in in the House and the Senate uh, for Iowa, and one of them was the philosophical exemption bill. So Iowa has uh, religious exemptions, we have medical exemptions, but we don't have philosophical or uh, personal belief exemptions or whatever we want to call them. Um, this was a Senate file to. Uh, introduced philosophical uh, exemptions in the state of Iowa. And so it had a subcommittee hearing a couple of weeks ago. And fortunately, uh, it was an interesting experience because we did, there There have been other bills, but for the first time there actually was kind of what uh, appears to be our state anti-vaccine group that is has now recruited, you know, basically recruited people to go to this subcommittee meeting, recruited parents, and other interested parties and it was very interesting experience because it, it, for something that is uh suppose you know the, the the group that was opposed to this kind of tries to make it predicated on choice and wanting to give families choice boy they can't just help but not throw in every single anti-vaccine trope in the book and talk about 
uh, there's no such thing as herd immunity. And um, if we have, if, if we require vaccines for school, that's like uh, North Korea and all this kind of, of piling on top of myth on top of myth. So fortunately, the, the bills were, um, I, I got to attend the subcommittee meeting. Fortunately, the bill, this particular bill and another bill that would prohibit, it was an interesting bill. It was one that would prohibit um, it was it had a catch-all of a bunch of stuff it would make it so insurance companies couldn't drop or change premiums of people because they don't immunize it would make it so that um oh a few things but then also so that people who worked for clinics could not be fired if they either did not get their required vaccines or if they refused to do immunizations as part of their job which was oh i i i'm like I'm sorry, like, if I'm running a pediatric clinic here, if you're going to up and I'm not running a pediatric clinic, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a physician at a pediatric clinic, people are running it. And if you are going to all of a sudden, if your job has been to immunize uh, and be a nurse here, uh, and then all of a sudden you decide, I'm no longer going to immunize children as part of my job we're going to need to find somebody who can actually do the job. I don't see how that law would work. Um, but anyway, both of those bills were voted out or they were voted down. They were rejected out of subcommittee. And the good takeaway point from this that I really enjoyed seeing was that they were voted down in a bipartisan fashion. So the three members on this committee, uh, both of which had two Republicans and a Democrat and one Republican and one Democrat voted each of these bills are uh, rejected each of these bills in subcommittee. So they are not advancing and Iowa is still reasonably protected for the time being. That is very good news. And I heard from multiple sources that you in particular did a wonderful job giving testimony and speaking at the hearing. I give a little bit of testimony and there is a podcast called under the golden dome. If anybody mm -hmm. wants to listen to kind of get the sense of the tone of it. And I do have a couple of sentences in that podcast there's an episode called exemptions so if you want to kind of if you're interested in iowa politics and you want to hear about that subcommittee hearing then uh that's the place to check out so my around the web is something kind of heartwarming and lovely if you look at it the right way okay this week this week ethan lindenberger went to washington mm -hmm. He is the teenager who took to Reddit to say, my mom didn't vaccinate me, but I'd like to get vaccinated now that I'm 18. How do I do that? Mm -hmm. Went to his family physician, um, and she vaccinated him. I'm actually working on trying to get him on the show, by the way. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah, he is a cool kid. He testified in front of the HELP Committee, which stands for Health, Environment, Lizards, and Pensions, right? Uh, something like that, yeah. Yeah, that um, the, the, <laughs> the chair of the committee is Lamar Alexander. I'm going to link to the video feed for the hearing in this episode's show notes. Mm -hmm. And it was it was fabulous. He did a great job. His story is compelling. Mm -hmm. uh, his story speaks a lot to how easy it is to find misinformation and fall for misinformation and how important it is to understand the sources of information that we're getting our health information from. That's yeah, and I thought that was the strength because I see, you know, I've noticed a lot of the people criticizing him and some of the anti-vaccine people going on his page and saying, well, you're not an expert on this. Sure, why do you get to testify? And the thing is that he's 
testifying about how misinformation affects somebody. He's a victim of misinformation. His testimony is important. And that's why he was there, not as an expert in vaccines or to tell people that they should immunize, but to talk about how misinformation gets spread and what the consequences are. Exactly. So the other side of this, the non-heartwarming side, is that the anti-vaccine people, you know, took to GoFundMe, which we should do a whole episode on GoFundMe. (laughs) They took to GoFundMe and raised a whole bunch of money so that hundreds of them could show up in Washington, D.C. I don't know what they thought was going to happen. I don't think there's a hearing room large enough for hundreds of people. Yeah. But... Um, they showed up. Uh, they they were thinking that the committee hearing was about mandatory vaccination, right. and there was going to be a vote on making vaccines mandatory everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I took to the Minnesota Childhood Immunization Coalition page yesterday mm-hmm. and just sort of ranted about how you were lied to. It was never about mandatory vaccination, and. You you know, you wasted your money, your time, your energy, and confused a whole lot of people. I know one woman told me that her friend was at Amy Klobuchar's office, and they were getting inundated by anti-vaccine activists calling them and saying, we're against mandatory vaccination. And the, you know, the poor um, assistant was like, okay, great. (laughs) What do you want me to do about that? (laughs) Uh, So... That's part of, I mean, that's part of what makes all of this so frustrating is the amount of misinformation about everything that gets spread through the anti-vaccine movement makes everything more difficult. But the really the bright spot was seeing someone who's 18 years old who understands that looking at our sources and double checking our facts is very important gives me so much hope not just in the vaccine corner of the world but in everything yeah i I kind of i've been going around saying the kids are all right (laughs) we're gonna do okay yeah well he and he was so well spoken like i i at 18 could never have done what he did with the aplomb that he did i can you know barely like put together a couple paragraphs or a subcommittee hearing but he's up there handling you know and and expressing himself eloquently uh it just did a fantastic job i was very impressed i i would like to meet his english teachers Mm -hmm. and give them all a reward great job (laughs) okay um i want to talk a little bit about acip okay Cool. Last week, I traveled to Atlanta for ACIP. I just want to tell the story about what happened there, um, because the second half of this episode is, of course, some little mini interviews that I did yeah. with a couple of people. I mentioned that already. So I traveled to Atlanta for ACIP. It's good for me to go there every once in a while, but really it's been a few years since I've been there. It's the... the uh, the granularity of the data that's presented is fabulous, and mm-hmm. there's, you know, you can watch it live streaming, but... For me, being able to sit there among scientists and, and ask them, can you explain to me a little bit more what that means? It's it's invaluable. So I was happy to be there in general. But really the reason I had gone is that the anti-vaccine people have decided to inundate their words, not mine, right. ACIP. So they registered in such large amounts that the CDC set up an overflow room. And we decided that we didn't want to be in the overflow room. So we got to the CDC early. 
so that we could get in the main room. Well, the main room, as it turned out, was only about half full because 160 people who registered never showed up. Lol. <sighs> well, it made me mad because I was like, do you know how early I woke up in Minnesota time? It was right. really early. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. So, I mean. But it, was that overall or was that largely from the anti-vaxxers that were descending upon it that they didn't show up? It was all it was all anti-vaccine people. Yeah, they just didn't make it. Okay. Way to commit, guys. I know. It's terrible. I mean, and they really could have. They caused all sorts of issues for everyone that's there, not just pro-vaccine people. Mm -hmm. Because the anti-vaccine people were freaking out that they weren't going to get a seat in the regular room. I mean, why be in the overflow room? You could be sitting at home eating bonbons and watching the live feed if you're going to be in the overflow room. Right. Yeah, and I guess I kind of don't understand what their purpose is because it's not the same as, like, trying to get a lawmaker to change a law. It's... you know, a lot of ACIP, at least what I've listened to, and you're more of an expert than I am, is talking about the ins and outs of the data and mm-hmm. discussing that. It's not these overarching tales that they have that mm-hmm. that vaccines are dangerous and all this kind of stuff. It's a it's a little more nitty gritty nuts and bolts mm-hmm. and looking and fine tuning recommendations and this, that and the other where and then I hear them get up there and they're just grandstanding to people, yep. you know. <laughs> Del Big Tree weaves a tale in which he yes. tries to include every vaccine. Put a pin in that. <laughs> so I really was wondering what it was all about too. And I'll tell you being there told an entirely different tale than watching the live stream so i'm sitting there mm-hmm. and del big tree comes in and women it's you know 90 percent of them are women mm-hmm. women flock to him <laughs> and they they're all taking selfies with del i mean just like one after another after another and you mm-hmm. know paul offit by contrast is there i don't i did not see one selfie taken with paul offit of course, you know, most of us know him because Paul makes himself really accessible right. to people. Um, but, you know, I I could have taken a selfie with Paul if I, you know, had been thinking of it. I don't think of selfies, to be honest with you. Uh, right. But the, all sorts of selfies being taken. So two cameras show up, two news cameras show up. Um, I don't know where they were from. The anti-vaxxers claim that one of them was from CNN. The rumor is the other one was local news. So Del Big Tree comes in the room, he sees the two news cameras, and he makes a beeline from them and starts grandstanding. No large, you know, inert placebo controlled studies, mm-hmm. you know, uh, $4 billion paid out from vaccine court, blah, blah. So yeah. I kind of walked up behind him in the line of the camera, just sort of like over his shoulder, <laughs> and made like a skeptical face and like snarl and shook my head I like, no. <laughs> I don't know where it is. Um, uh, and in the meantime, there's, you know, 30 women standing around So you're around like him. the Alyssa Milano uh, <laughs> of the ACIP. I will take that. All, the, all these women are standing around him with their cell phones recording him. It was, it was a circus. It was ridiculous. <laughs> so, you know, really... ACIP is, in their brains, the Del Big Tree show. Oh, yeah. The next day, they recorded an episode of Del Big Tree's actual YouTube show mm-hmm. at um, some chiropractic college. Okay. And they all were there. So they weren't at ACIP on Thursday uh, right. while I was there. Yes. 
they were not there because they were, you know, participating in the actual Del Big Tree show, not the they one that wanna, they were. They didn't want to listen to the actual scientific deliberations of the committee. But, you know, the uh, before, or I shouldn't say before, but on Thursday, of course, the main purpose of them being there was so that they could have um, what I termed a tent revival about being anti-vaccine <laughs> for ACIP and tell them things like, I am a messenger from God and I am watching you. Uh, wow. But the, <laughs> yeah, it was intense. That's bold. Um, but I have Del Bigtree's comments here, and I want to play a little game with you that oh I like boy. to call, Karen, would you please pause that for a minute because I'd like to make a comment about what that person just said. Oh, okay. This sounds eerily familiar to another game. I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't. Okay, never mind. <laughs> All right, ready? Yeah. Hello, thank you for this opportunity. My name is Del Bigtree. I'm the CEO of the Informed Consent Action Network. Many of you received our 88-page review. We've been in a debate with Health and Human Services discussing actual safety of vaccines, which is something I don't hear happening in this room anywhere near uh, enough. Let, let's pause right there. <laughs> the, the entire purpose of the ACIP is like the safety of the vaccine schedule. I'd also like to point out that the Informed Consent Action Network, I had an interesting conversation on Twitter with like one of their, I don't know, promo people, and they claimed they <laughs> represent 5 million people. And I said, wow, 5 million people. Can you back that up with a citation? And he said, well, yes, look at this letter. It is signed by like X number of other groups that each have uh you know x number they they claim a total of five million members and i said hmm can you show me evidence that these are five million unique people right because i suspect that some people in fact maybe all of the people are members of more than one of these groups and i didn't get a response on twitter from that person yeah to back that up i pointed out that the nra claims five million people even though that's in quite a bit of, of, of dispute as well. That would be quite a thing if ICANN represents 5 million people. I didn't get I any can't. a response from that. ICANN is quite a thing. Let's continue, shall Let's we? Let's go. Not using placebos compared to control studies of vaccines that themselves have never been tested against placebo is a joke. And I mean, do you want me to break down every single thing that he says is wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because of course there are placebo-controlled studies. You can go and look at placebo-controlled studies on HPV vaccine and flu vaccine and a number of other vaccines. But when you are doing, for the large part, what we're looking at these days are vaccines that are replacing other vaccines. And if you have a new vaccine right. that's replacing another vaccine that's been used for decades safely, and all the studies show that it's safe, all the, the, the accumulation of data shows that it's safe, then you study that new vaccine with the not a placebo, but the control being the old established vaccine. So if you have, for example, uh, the pneumococcal 13 vaccine that's replaced the pneumococcal 9 vaccine, you test that new vaccine against the pneumococcal 9 vaccine. You don't test against placebo. But there are still plenty of placebo-controlled studies. You can go back historically. And you can go to the polio trials in the 1950s and whatnot and, and see the, 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 the placebo-controlled studies that were done. They're, they're out there. Anyway. Carry on. They certainly are. All right. Go ahead, Del. I've been here a year and a half. I've been watching you. And I've watched discussions about things like Japanese encephalitis. 
Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but nobody seems to be complaining about the fact that we have two vaccines that injured, had injury rates, adverse events of over 100 people, nine serious adverse events, when the disease oh, itself has only infected 12 human beings in 24 years. That means both of these vaccines are six times more dangerous than the disease oh. itself, yet no one on this panel seems yeah. to want to discuss that. Let's pause. Those- so that's math. Yeah. All right. So there's, <laughs> you got to do some math for that. You get the Japanese encephalitis vaccine when you think you're going to an area in which you're at high risk of getting this dangerous disease. It is recognized that there's a risk to the vaccine. And so you make that decision if you are at risk of getting that disease. All right. So the, the, you have you can't do the math the way that he does it because you don't know the lives that have been saved by people that have exactly. gone to areas where there has been Japanese encephalitis, not gotten it, and not died. So um, that's bad. Also, did he say he had been there for a year and a half? What is he yeah. talking about? Is he living there? <laughs> <In> the, <laughs> is, he, is he camping out at the in, at like the at the CDC? What is that about? <laughs> I think he means he's been going to ACIP meetings for a year oh, okay. and a half. Okay. Which, so you he's know, been to some meetings. Okay, whatever. Some people have been going for 20, 30 years. So it's the right, same. Right, right, he's same, been, same, same. I've been here for a year and a half. It's like waiting in line for tickets for Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go. Go ahead, Dell. I'm going to pass whatever it is with Japanese encephalitis next. The stupidest vaccine known to man. Remember, 12 people infected in America, 4 million people visiting the Asia every single year. Not Asia. Asia. Years, 12 people have been infected, and yet we're having these conversations. It's clear that this is a money-making operation for the vaccine maker. It has nothing I mean, to do with actual safety. Next you know, discussion. I don't know. Uh, I don't read a lot about the Japanese encephalitis vaccine because it's not a routine vaccine that we give, but I highly doubt that there's money being made hand over <laughs> fist on that vaccine but hey keep on going right would be i could go into pregnancy and vaccines we have a you know we have a you know we have a warning that there's a sevenfold increase from getting the flu shot to pregnant women in the first trimester we've actually challenged the fda i've sued and won lawsuits against the national institute of health now and the hhs and we just settled so i'm going to stop that there oh man because he, he didn't sue and win a lawsuit. No. He filed a FOIA request. Right. <laughs> and they, hand, they said, we don't have those documents to hand over, which he took as meaning the CDC hasn't done studies on vaccine safety in 30 years, which right. is just this amazing leap. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, they keep saying that. They keep saying they sued and won. And what really happened was they, they, they made the FOIA request. They didn't get the documents. They then... Did they did some form of lawsuit, and then the lawsuit was like, no, they're the 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 CDC is right. They they don't have the documents that you want. So really, in a sense, they lost yeah. <laughs> the, the lawsuit. But anyway, the uh, the other thing with that is that this nonsense about a signal for increased miscarriages. So I I would need to pull up that study. But there's a there's one of these you know extremely poorly done. I believe probably VAERS report based mm-hmm. things that it, um, it claims to have this increase in miscarriages. The reality is that there are countless studies that show that not only do, does getting mm-hmm. a flu vaccine in pregnancy not cause miscarriages, it actually in general leads to better outcomes 
for for babies and for mothers. So, exactly. um, you know, uh, in some studies, fewer miscarriages, better, um, uh, like better birth weights when they're born, and then of course less influenza uh, after birth and less influenza for mom. So right. the 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 this idea that he puts out there that like there's this signal and nobody's caring. It's the opposite. It's like there are dozens of studies showing that the flu vaccine is safe in pregnancy and leads to better outcomes. And then there's this one extremely poorly done and probably poorly done on purpose to get a desired result done by some very poor scientists who want to try to show that the vaccine is bad. And then everybody goes, hmm, what should we, what should, what's, what's better? Dozens mm -hmm. of studies that are well done or this one poorly done study. And we all know that the dozens of studies are better. So that's the deal with that. Right. And that was data covered, too, in the ACIP meeting. And yeah. I actually I did talk to LJ Tan about that in one of the interviews. So stay tuned for that. Um, I also want to mention that I've had two pregnancies and had my flu shot both times. And um, my kids are kind of weird, but that's not because of the flu shot. <laughs> they never tested a flu shot or a Tdap vaccine on a single pregnant woman in the trials. Yet you guys are assuming safety and giving it to pregnant. So just yep. he does a sneaky thing there. He says in trials, right? So that people so that we can't come back and be like, no, there've been all sorts of studies about the flu vaccine and Tdap in pregnant women. But he sneaks in the in trials there and then makes you know it's obviously it's obvious why you don't test something in trials on pregnant women. Uh, right. So the the point is that the, the the original clinical trials did not include pregnant women. What we have now are dozens of studies that have looked at, you know, outside of those clinical trials, not done by the drug companies. Dozens of studies that have looked at flu shot as well as Tdap in pregnancy and found them to be safe. And as that evidence accumulated, the CDC, the ACIP said, we need to make this recommendation. It is clearly better for pregnant right. women to get these shots than not get these shots. Precisely. All right, Del, go ahead. Keep pregnant it. women. And then overriding any signal you have from your own studies in the first trimester that it could be causing miscarriage. And then to get around it, we just heard a study where we compared one vaccine to two vaccines as though that somehow gets to the bottom of the answer. Instead of how about we compare women that are getting vaccines during pregnancy to those that are getting none. I could go on and on with how these discussions, but the hepatitis B vaccine discussion, HEPA-SLAB. Can you pause for a sec? I don't know what he's trying to say there. There's really only two vaccines that are re recommended in pregnancy. It is yeah. the Tdap and the influenza vaccine. So I have no idea what he's getting at there. <laughs> anyway. See, I think this is, I, I'm just going to say, I think this is a big difference between anti-vaccine activists like Dell. Who, he, I mean... From what I know about him, he grew up in a family where they didn't vaccinate, and he's never gotten vaccines, taking his kids to get vaccines. So he doesn't have, and obviously he's never been a, a provider giving vaccines. So he doesn't have any lived experience with vaccines. And I find this a lot with these anti-vaxxers who never, ever have been through the immunization schedule, that they say things like this that just don't make sense because they just haven't actually been been there um it's I, I don't know what to make of that but it's sort of random yeah i don't know there's a fundamental lack of understanding of how some of this works uh, that is among some of these that are the more outspoken anti-vaxxers and i don't know <laughs> I, I don't know how uh to it, it's, it's sometimes very difficult to try to you know educate 
somebody when you're not quite at the same level of understanding about vaccines and how the vaccine schedule works and whatnot, and Dell is definitely mm -hmm. not there. You approved a vaccine at 100%. You asked great questions. You said, you know, has this brand new adjuvant that's going to start messing with our toll-like receptors, has it ever been given with other adjuvants and vaccines? No, it never has. No data. I just want to point out that they didn't talk about the hepatitis B vaccine at all during that meeting. So. Okay. So, I mean. But don't let that stop you, Dal. The point of the public comments is supposed to be to inform ACIP about the votes they're going to take. So, whatever. On that, but let us be known. We're going to give them together at the same time. Oh, we'll just assume that that will be safe. Moving on, we know that there was 14 heart attacks during the trials. You brought it up here. You said in the discussion, it's an alarming signal, but we'll see what happens. That means American, our citizens are now test groups, a part of a med medical experiment you were putting on them. That is a direct violation of the Nuremberg Code. Holy cow. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I haven't gone into the details of what he's referring to when it comes to heart attacks. I don't know. Uh, I would have to look at that, and I'm going to suspect that. Uh, he's wrong. Right. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he's not presenting it accurately. But wow, we're really getting into uh, Nuremberg Code territory uh, because uh, hepatitis B vaccine is recommended. But okay. Yeah, the Nuremberg Code is always interesting. That's the the code of ethics, de you know, devised after World War II to make sure that nothing like the Holocaust ever happened again. So you know, going uh, going full Hitler uh, is always. It's always one way to, you know, encourage ACIP to listen to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and other reasonable people. Right. Settled science. You're the only scientific body that's actually saying your science is settled in the entire world. Thank you for your and this is how your you're doing it. I hope you will start being scientists and actually caring. Let's have a placebo study and let's compare vaccinated to unvaccinated before we destroy our living control group. Thank you very much. Wow. Thank you very much. Okay. Before we destroy our living control group. Yeah. What on earth is it? Who's the control group? Um, Wouldn't the, the unvaccinated people be the control group and they're getting destroyed? How are they? How are they getting destroyed? If, if he thinks that vaccines are bad, <laughs> aren't they? Uh, anyway, I, I'm just shaking my head. But that's what's interesting because he's claiming that he wants a placebo-controlled, fully vaccinated versus unvaccinated study. He wants a study right there. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. Let's do a placebo-controlled, fully unvaccinated versus vaccinated study, meaning that he wants thousands upon thousands of people to sign up for a study, not know whether they're getting, right. put their babies in this study, their newborn babies in this study, not know whether their babies are getting all the vaccines in the schedule or getting None. saline shots right. for the entirety of their, I don't know, infancy, childhood life, who knows what. They, well, they want it long term, so this right, would right, have right. to be a person's entire life. That would kill a lot of people. And it would be crazy. No one would sign up for that. No. <laughs> I wouldn't sign up for that. No, please just give my kids the vaccines. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that's, that's unique thinking there, Dell. <laughs> I just want to point out that they all applauded after every one of them spoke. Here's the unfortunate thing. If you watch the video of this, which I guess mm -hmm. I'll include, uh, I was sitting... I didn't know where the camera was at first until my friend Joe Curlin started texting me being like, I see you. And then I kept giving him, I kept giving him, um, uh, what's his name? Joe Halpert looks. Okay. Is I don't know these looks actually. Oh, from the office. Oh, okay. like when he looks at the camera, enough. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. 
Okay. But I, so I didn't know where the camera was. So I was actually like right in the line of the camera the whole mm-hmm. time. And so when they started applauding, <laughs> I just gave Dell this look like, I don't even know. It's like, it, it was a look. It was a scowl. It wasn't good. It's not what I would have done if I had known that there were cameras on me. But there was one okay. woman behind. It's a meme now, so. Yeah. That's fine. There was one woman behind me. I was sitting next to Allison Singer from the Autism Science Foundation. There was one woman behind us filming us the entire time. And there was another man. We called him Man Bun, who was sitting in the front row. And he was he had his iPad out and he was filming the ACIP members the whole time, just filming them, listening to all the comments. And I'll say the ACIP members were fantastic. They all had their eyes open. They all had completely expressionless faces and mm-hmm. just and just listen. So I don't think that they're going to get uh, any blowback for anything that they did and you know whatever people can say whatever they want about my face i'm not you know i'm not getting paid by anyone who's gonna care i'm i'm sure it was a fully justified face i i would stand side by side with you and that face whatever face it was i was disgusted by the hooping and the hollering and the 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 tenor of the applause it it just seemed really to lack the appropriate decorum that um that the day needed especially since they were all wearing black like they were going to a funeral because of all the babies that have been killed by vaccines so so that's that (laughs) you made it all the way through good job do do i win a gift card yes you win a gift card to um a foot of snow on saturday oh fun thanks that's great that comes from you doesn't it it does all right Okay, well... So I'm excited for these interviews. Yeah, when we come back, we're going to hear from Lori Boyle, LJ Tan, and Amy Pisani. Probably not in that order. All right. Roll that beautiful vaccine footage. Hi, I have LJ... Dr. LJ... No, just LJ Tan. PhD. There we go. I'm a fun... You're a fud. Not a mud. <laughs> we are here at the ACIP conference in Atlanta, Georgia, at the CDC, and we just got done hearing a whole slew of information about influenza. And everybody who's a Vax Talk listener knows that when I say the word influenza, the next words out of my mouth are, let's talk to LJ. Oh, delighted to be here. Okay. So I have a couple of questions for you because this is um, lots of data. Mm-hmm. Data is fun. Data is always fun. So I had a question here. Um, First of all, actually, I'm going to ask you this question. Elevator speech, all the stuff that you heard about influenza, what's the key takeaway that people need to know about what ACIP discussed concerning influenza? H1N1 is the dominant strain, but we're getting more H3, so that's a scientific component of that. But I think the bigger message is that if you look at the burden of disease, the first takeaway I get is that There's no such thing as a mild influenza season. There's a huge burden of influenza that we suffer every single year. And the second big takeaway on the high level is that there is an incredible benefit to vaccinating. Because if you look at the figure that they showed about diseases and averted, um, complications inverted, negative impacts averted, there's there's a huge benefit of vaccinating this season. And I can only say if our vaccination coverage was even higher, think of all the great good we can do. Yeah, that's, thank you. That's, um, I'm, I'm glad that's what I took away too, but I'm glad someone smart took that away too. So when we were listening to the presentation, um, the one on vaccine effectiveness, there were a couple of things that 
you know, they kind of zoom through because they know what they're talking about. But um, I don't. So I'm just wondering if you can, for me, talk about how how effective the vaccine is against the certain strains that are circulating right now, especially considering that they're not necessarily an exact match. Yeah, so I would say the, the, the good news is that if you look at all influenza A strains, um, it looks like the vaccine's at least 47% effective. I think the the... You, when you put that together with the fact with what I said earlier, that H1 seems to be, at least this time, the prevalent strain that's circulating, um, the effectiveness against H1 is much better. And I, wanna, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, which I'm sure, Karen, you can pull out when, when you want to later on. That's a really tiny graph. I'm not going to look at that, but I believe it was in the 60s. And I think what was really optimistic also was that if you look at the children, the vaccine was was especially effective in kids. So I think I would say, you know, get those kids immunized because we already had 41 pediatric deaths this year, which is unfortunate because this is a vaccine-preventable disease. So, All right. Thank you. That's it. I have with me now uh, Miss Lori Boyle, who is a an advanced practice nurse practitioner. Did I get that right? Yes, is it? <laughs> okay. Hi, Lori. Hi. Very nice to be here. So I want to ask you, what have you taken away from being at this ACIP meeting? Um, this is the first time I'm attending, so it's very interesting to me to see the process. Um, you know, the, the the thorough review of the literature and what it presents, and and I really do feel like they do make considered um, decisions whether or not to add something in. Because there were times where they're saying, you know what, we're not really convinced by this evidence. We're not going to say definitely everybody should get this vaccine. Maybe it should be based on risk factors. Uh, a couple of times where they're saying, you know what, we don't agree with this change, so we'll just table that and, until it has more study. I find that very interesting, and I think it's very reassuring and I think the public should know that that changes to the vaccine schedule are not made lightly. I, I agree it's always fascinating to see mm-hmm. how the sausage gets made. <laughs> um, it's really boring sometimes too. It, it can be dry but I am a nerd uh, and, I, and I do love going to um, a medical continuing education so this is very much similar to that. <laughs> and yesterday you made a public comment. You uh, made a public comment on behalf of yourself as a nurse on behalf of nurses in general, and behalf, on behalf of the organization Nurses Who Vaccinate. So why was it important to you to come here and make a public comment? Um, it was important pretty much for the reasons that I said in my comment, um, that nurses are the number one most trusted profession in America, and we owe it to the public to, to honor that trust and provide them with the best evidence. Uh, I do know there are nurses who, who do not follow that code of ethics that I have, and that bothers me, and I, I didn't feel like I could let that be the only voice of nursing that people heard. Uh, I had to provide the evidence-based, valid point of view. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. I am joined by Amy Pisani, who is the executive director of Vaccinate Your Family, a new generation of Every Child by Two. And it's always very exciting to see Amy. Hi, Amy. Hi, Karen. Nice to see you. And I just had a couple of questions for you about this ACIP meeting. It's Thursday right now, which means it's the last day of the meeting. But yesterday, they were talking quite a bit about the HPV vaccine. What sort of decision did they make about that? So the committee hasn't made a decision yet. They are still deliberating whether or not to increase the age range for HPV vaccine up to age 45, whether it would be for both males or and females. 
and they have an awful lot to consider before making the decision. I believe that may happen in June of 2019. And it's interesting because um, there, there was some talk about harmonization versus increasing it to age 45, and it was it was pretty confusing. Um, should people who are age 44 just run out, run on out and get their HPV vaccines now, or what should they do? Well, since it's not recommended in that age group yet, you might have to pay out of pocket if that were the case and you wanted to go and protect yourself, which is not a bad idea. And a lot of considerations people wouldn't think of is that, say you become a widower and you've only had one partner, that might be a good reason to go out and get vaccinated. Or perhaps you're divorced and you've had very few partners in life or um, and just really want to protect yourself. So it is something to think about. Um, these are special populations, and I, I think the committee will consider that. But overall, it seems that the committee data that they've been seeing is that most people acquire HPV in their mid-20s. And so whether or not they plan on expanding that recommendation is really up to the committee, but I don't see it in the stars. Today they've been talking about the pneumococcal vaccine, PCV-13, the 13-valent vaccine, and they had a really extended conversation about that amongst the voting and non-voting members. So what was that conversation about? So we're seeing a reduction in the cases of pneumonia among older adults, most likely because we're doing such an incredibly good job at vaccinating infants. And so we're not, there's not as much disease circulating through the community. And I think this is sort of a worldwide phenomenon that's happening. Data is different from every country. So the question now is whether or not they'll continue with their current recommendations or whether they will consider removing some recommendations for older adults. Again, the committee will be looking more at that, and they may or may not have a vote in June. There was a lot of conversation today about how difficult it would be to make a change now and how difficult it would be programmatically um, if there's a new vaccine coming down the pike. Can you explain that a little for us? Yes, so it's been a huge endeavor to get providers and immunization programs, everyone who's involved in immunizing older adults, especially, of course, pharmacists, to understand the recommendations as they are. And they're not simple. They're not exactly clear as sometimes the other recommendations are. It's an age-based recommendation right now, which is much easier than having a special population or a health indicator kind of risk. If the committee decides to make a change and maybe say it should be for special populations, someone at high risk, and then in two years or so, we get a newer vaccine, PCV20, or something else coming down the pike, which seems to be in the, in the pipeline, well, we have to re-educate those providers all over again. So the committee is kind of weighing these these situations where, okay, we keep it a status quo because we know something new might happen in the near future, or do we as a committee have to look at how much it's costing the, the country to vaccinate these people if, in fact, it's necessary? Um, and it's a difficult decision for the committee. It's probably one of the most difficult decisions they've had in, in quite a while. So the, the, I'm glad you pointed out that it's a difficult decision because I think that not a lot of parents realize how much consideration and thought goes into making the immunization schedule. So p- should people feel, um, how should people feel about how hard this decision is in the conversation about it? Um, I think it's really exciting. And I, I always, I always kind of like it when the committee makes some kind of radical decision, you know. They remove vaccines from the schedule. They, they recommend other vaccines because they feel like they're being more effective. And it's not easy for the companies. Obviously, the vaccine companies need to sell their products. That's, that's their goal. Um, it's just a reality of the marketplace. Um, the committee is 
looking at this decision regarding pneumococcal, for instance, and saying to themselves, it's a really complicated system. I mean, we have a healthcare system that provides vaccines from the private sector to the public sector, you know, and it's, it's not so cut and dry. And so them understanding that it's not just always about the data on the disease, and it's also about looking at the overall um, systems to make sure that everyone has access. Um, one issue here is like Indian natives and Alaskans, they may be really impacted if we stop vaccinating. Um, it's just really, to me, really exciting um, to know that there's an expert committee out there that's protecting us and really thinking through every decision that they make, which affects every one of us in our country. Thank you so much.